Oh, gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us and challenge us and simply remind us that you are with us even when sometimes we forget. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We trust you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a pastor named John Ortberg tells the following story. One day I was walking with a few friends in Newport Beach, California. We went past a bar where a fight was going on inside, spilled out onto the street like a scene out of an old western. Three men were beating up one lone opponent, and he was bleeding quite freely. We had to do something, so we went over to break it up, to warn the aggressors in no uncertain terms that this fight was over. Unfortunately, I have not had much experience in that sort of thing. I missed the day that my seminary class covered how to break up a barroom brawl. We had spent a little bit too much time in church to have effective language for that kind of intervention right at our fingertips. All right, you guys, cut it out right now. I'm serious. Uh, works really well on three-year-olds in church who know that you have access to their parents, but with seasoned gladiators who are running on sizable quantities of whiskey and testosterone, it is not as effective. Actually, it doesn't always work that well with three-year-olds either. Breaking up drunken brawls is not a strong area of spiritual passion or competence for me, Ortberg writes, but somebody had to do something, so we did. We spoke prophetically to them, and then I waited for my first fist fight since I had been part of a deacon board. However, the thugs suddenly looked up at us with fear in their eyes and started to slink away. This caught me so much by surprise, I almost stopped them to ask why they were running away. Then I looked behind me. There I saw one of the biggest guys I had ever seen. He was apparently employed as a bouncer at the barroom, and suddenly I gained a great deal of respect for that profession. I would guess the man stood around six foot seven, weighing about 250 pounds or so with perhaps 2% body fat. We called him Mongo, but not to his face. Mongo did not say a word. He just stood there with muscles bulging. He looked as if he hoped they would try to take him on. This was an area of massive, breathtaking competence for him. Breaking up fights was his spiritual gift. In that moment, my attitude was transformed. You better not catch us, you better not let us catch you hanging around here again. We were different people because we had a great big mongo. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was ready to serve someone who needed help. And why? Because Mongo had passed by. I was convinced that I was not alone. The middle of a barroom brawl was a perfectly safe place for me to be. If I were convinced that Mongo were with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I would have a fundamentally different approach to life. A couple things to notice there. 
first. It's interesting to think about the changes that would come over someone if we had a great big Mongo with us all the time. A little bit more confidence, a little more humility, a little more boldness, a little less anxiety, a little less fear. At the same time, just because you have a great big Mongo on your side does not mean you won't get punched in the face. But either way, I think it would cause us to behave differently, even as that doesn't necessarily guarantee the outcome. I want you to hold on to that image, because I think it's going to be helpful in a couple of moments when we get to the person we're studying. But first, let me remind you what we're studying. In our Lenten series, we're looking at the person of David who was known as a man after God's own heart. And and that's an important phrase, a man after God's own heart. Recognize there's a couple different ways to interpret that. The first is that David's heart took after God's heart, as if it was built in the same way, of the same stuff. It's the same kind of heart. He had a, a man after God's own heart. But another way we can understand this is that David's heart chased after God's heart. In other words, David loved God, longed for God, pursued God, followed after God. And as we think about both of these, we also may find that this is not necessarily how most of us would always describe our own hearts. We we may not describe ourselves as having a heart after God's. Because, of course, our hearts sometimes are a little too disheveled or distracted or or distant. Our hearts are too often busy with, with our own things. Our hearts spend a lot of time chasing after many, many, many other loves. And this may help us to understand a little of sometimes our lack of faithfulness or our inability to follow. In Psalm 63, David says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. When David is in a desert, what he needs more than water, what he longs for more than water, what he thirsts for more than water is God. Which brings me to the question beneath this series, could we reset or even reorder our loves such that God started to carry a greater significance, a greater gravitational pull to our hearts? Could we learn to love God more, even in this Lenten series? And so as we get started on this, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. While you're turning there, I will uh, remind you Saul is currently king of Israel. Uh, Israel is still a brand new monarchy. We just got started here. Uh, Alas, for the last couple of chapters, 1 Samuel, uh, Saul has continually turned away from God. A little more focused on his own needs and his own wants and his own honor than God. And because of this, God has rejected Saul. So let's see what happens when we ratchet the pressure up a little bit. 1 Samuel 17. 
Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sukkot and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And we'll stop there for just a minute. The, the setup of this story is amazing, especially as we remember that Saul was described as being a head taller than all the other Israelites. So you have these two hills, and you have these two armies, and you have these two giants, and then there's this one valley right in between, rife with hate and fear and hostility and failure and conceit and contempt, and you have this 40-day stalemate. Just to make sure we understand the stalemate, Warfare 101, you do not take your troops down a steep slope to fight an enemy up the sheer sides of a ravine. That's a bad way to lose a fight. So you're kind of stuck waiting for the other side to do that, except they're not going to do it either because everyone knows you don't go down a hill and then fight up a hill. What's more, you don't send someone who's going to lose to a giant because that will undermine all your efforts as well. Just another kind of point of clarity, Goliath is not a fairy tale giant. He's not 40 feet tall and, you know, oh, that's not how this works. He's probably closer to like 6'9", but he's huge. And in that culture especially, he's gigantic. Not only that, but after the description of his armor alone, you realize that this man was a human tank. Uh, I mean, you picture kind of a linebacker with full metal body armor, except that this one has been bred and built for war. The fact that he's still around means he wins. He's been fighting for a long, long time, and he's very, very good at it. Getting back to our story, kind of getting back to our passage, David's going to show up in a minute. He's sent from his father. Uh, he brings some food to the war effort, and he hears the Philistine champion defying God and his army, and he, he volunteers to face the Philistine. Because David, for some strange reason, is not intimidated or even all that impressed with Goliath even while everyone else is completely paralyzed. And I think at this point, any news of anyone not cowering gets brought to Saul. And so let's keep reading, starting in verse 32. 
David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. And we'll stop there again, just for a moment. Uh, David offers to be Israel's champion, and Saul looks him up and down, pats him on the head, dismisses him. Listen, kid, I love the passion, I love the excitement. No, you don't understand the stakes. You don't understand the seriousness of this situation. You don't even understand what you're saying. This is a non-starter. But David sees it differently. I've fought long odds before. I've done hard things before. I've stood against fear before, plus God is with me. So I'm not overly impressed by giants. And we don't know why Saul allows this to take place. Maybe just to break the stalemate. Maybe he's got some bigger strategy in mind. Maybe he is holding on to hope. But whatever the case, he loads David up with all his armor trying to do anything he can to either help the impetuous youth, give him a fighting chance, or show him why this is ridiculous. But David won't be swayed, and he also wisely recognizes that for him, this is putting his faith in the wrong place. He's putting his faith in the wrong strength. And so he gets rid of the armor, picks up his familiar tools, and heads to a stream. Presumably in the middle of the valley, that's where water goes. Water doesn't normally, I mean, it, normally if you're looking for a stream between two hills, it's, it's right there in the middle. He picks out five smooth stones. Think racquetball size, not like little pebbles. This is probably a uh, pretty, uh, like a baseball. And then there's this amazing scriptural moment. As these two armies face off, as these two giants peer down, in between these two steep ravines, before the battle royale, David is there at a stream picking up rocks. It's such a, a discordant moment. There's such dissonance here. In the midst of all the chaos and the fear and the hate and the apprehension and the tension, there's this moment of calm and quiet and peace. And then David heads toward the giant. Let's finish up the story in verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. 
He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Amen. Okay, the two face off. Goliath is angry, disappointed, and and a little frustrated when he realizes that David is not a great warrior. He's He's just a boy. And the giant tries to strike fear into David because that's what bullies do. Goliath hurls his insults and his threats toward David. David responds in kind, though with a markedly different note. And then it's time. The Philistine starts moving toward David. David runs towards the Philistine. He pulls out his sling. He swings. He launches. It flies true. The giant falls. After 40-something verses of buildup, this battle is almost a letdown because it's over before it begins. It's one verse long. There's no like, and he dodged, and he weaved, and a thing, and he threw, and he missed, and then the thing, and the sword, and none of that. David just grabs the thing. It's the uh, um, crusade, the movie, the guy with the swords, and then he just pulls out a gun. It's such an anticlimactic, well, that was weird. Just to finish the story, because the battle goes the same way, the Philistines are are sort of just shell-shocked by their champion being taken down this easily, this quickly by this kid. And so they turn and run. The Israelites chase after and rout. And David takes another step toward who he will become. That being said, for the remainder of our time, I I want us to take a deeper look at David's heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And more specifically, I want us to look for where David looks for and finds his strength. Because I think he really, I think the reality is that we all look for and long for strength somewhere. I think we are drawn to strength. It's why I think we're so fascinated by the rich and the famous, or the powerful and the popular, or the stars, or the moguls, or the athletes. And that's not to say we like those people. Let's be really clear. But we we sort of want what they have. There's something in us that, that desires what makes them rich or famous or powerful or popular or a star or an athlete or a mogul. 
Or, or maybe it's that we, we want what those forms of strength provide. We, we want greater status, or, or we want greater security, or we want greater stability. We need strength so that we can feel like we're in control, which teaches us, really, to look for that strength in our abilities, in what we can do, or, or maybe in our armor, what we have, or in our allies, our, our community, our support. Because the reality is we don't know what's going to happen. So we know we need more strength. Of course, the real problem occurs when something comes along that is stronger than whatever it is we've cobbled together. In, in our story, Saul is strong, his armor is strong, his army is strong. And, and while that remains unchallenged and uncontested, everything's going great. And then the Philistines show up, and they seem to be bigger, and they might be better. Saul realizes that the places he has looked for strength may not actually be enough anymore. And I worry that we do the same thing sometimes, albeit in different ways. I trust my competence, my capacity. I put my trust in my tools, in my resources. I put most of my trust in myself and then a little bit left over for my community. And that works. It works great until it doesn't, until the Philistines show up. And then maybe it's too late, which is also when we tend to lose heart, when we, when we tremble, when we become terrified. I find it interesting that when David first comes before King Saul, he tells him, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Because, of course, the reality is that everyone has lost heart on account of Goliath. It's hard to be in the presence of overwhelming power, especially when that power is against you, and not be intimidated. It's hard not to feel weak. It's hard not to become small. Because of Goliath, the Israelites feel smaller. Saul feels smaller. Everyone feels smaller. But David doesn't. David hasn't lost heart. And why? Because I think David finds his strength in God, where giants and tyrants just don't loom quite so large, which is why David doesn't cower underneath the words of the giant when he first hears the giant's taunts. It's why David doesn't trust in the muscles in his arms or the best armor money can buy. That's why David doesn't trust in the army's tactical or offensive forces. He trusts in the strength of God, and that makes all the difference. And because David finds his strength in God, he's able to see Goliath differently. Everyone sees Goliath for what he is. He's a professional soldier. He's a giant. He's a lethal weapon. He is a killer. Everyone knows that there's no one who stands a chance to beat 
Goliath in combat. That's a given. It's a fact. It's reality. If you fight Goliath hand-to-hand, you die because you can't match Goliath's strength. But David doesn't see it. David doesn't seem to get the fact that, that you can't beat a giant. But you'll also notice Part of the reason is because David finds his strength in something bigger, something more powerful. David finds his strength in God, at which point giants aren't so big, battles aren't so scary, fear isn't that powerful, and he's changed. David develops through things like this, this, this weird mix of, of confidence and humility. We don't see the humility quite so much. He's a little young at this point in the story. He, he gets there. But I find this kind of mix intriguing. Confidence because he knows that God is with him and that God is strong. And yet also there's, there's this little bit of humility there because David knows just how much he needs God. I think we are understanding this passage when those two things come into balance. On the one hand, no matter what we are facing, we know that God is with us. And on the other hand, we also know that we don't have what it takes to do this on our own, which is why we need God's help in the first place. I think the real challenge for most of us is learning to look for and long for God's strength over and above all of the normal places we look. I think normally we do that backwards. Normally I look for all, I need to shore up all of my own forms of strength, all my own sources of strength, and then when I'm in a real bind, then I'll turn to God. And David does it the other way. He looks for and longs for God's strength first. I need God's presence and God's power more than I need money or muscles or might. And that's not to say it's going to always go my way, but it'll always go His way, and He'll always be with us which I think would change everything, even our hearts. I'll close with this psalm. It's Psalm 28. David wrote this one time. He said, to you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift my hands toward your most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back on them what they deserve because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what His hands have done. He will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord for He has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, 
and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and I, and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that, like David, you would be our strength, that we would look to you to be our shield, so that we might endure better, so that we might walk closer to you, so that you might transform our hearts so that we can long for you more and better. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.